Section 13 of Part 3 of Religious Affections. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew James Gray, mjgray.id.au. Religious Affections by Jonathan Edwards. Section 13 of Part 3. For a man to be highly conceited of his spiritual and divine knowledge is for him to be wise in his own eyes, if anything is, and therefore it comes under those prohibitions, Proverbs chapter 3 verse 7, be not wise in thine own eyes, Romans chapter 12 verse 16, be not wise in your own conceits, and brings men under that woe, Isaiah chapter 5 verse 21, Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes, and prudent in their own sight. Those that are thus wise in their own eyes are some of the least likely to get good of any in the world. Experience shows the truth of that. Proverbs chapter 26 verse 12 Seest thou a man wise in his own conceit? There is more hope of a fool than of him. To this some may object that the psalmist when we must suppose that he was in a holy frame, speaks of his knowledge as eminently great, and far greater than that of other saints. Psalm 119, verses 99 and 100 I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. To this I answer two things. 1. There is no restraint to be laid upon the Spirit of God as to what he shall reveal to a prophet for the benefit of his church, who is speaking or writing under immediate inspiration. The Spirit of God may reveal to such a one and dictate to him to declare to others secret things that otherwise would be hard, yea, impossible, for him to find out, as he may reveal to him mysteries that otherwise would be above the reach of his reason, or things in a distant place that he cannot see or future events that it would be impossible for him to know and declare if they were not extraordinarily revealed to him. So the Spirit of God might reveal to David this distinguishing benefit he had received by conversing much with God's testimonies, and use him as his instrument to record it for the benefit of others, to excite them to the like duty, and to use the same means to gain knowledge. Nothing can be gathered concerning the natural tendency of the ordinary gracious influences of the Spirit of God from that that David declares of his distinguishing knowledge under the extraordinary influences of God's Spirit, immediately dictating to him the divine mind by inspiration, and using David as his instrument to write what he pleased for the benefit of his church any more than we can reasonably argue that it is the natural tendency of grace to incline men to curse others and wish the most dreadful misery to them that can be thought of, because David, under inspiration, often curses others and prays that such misery may come upon them. 2. It is not certain that the knowledge David here speaks of is spiritual knowledge, wherein holiness does fundamentally consist, but it may be that greater revelation which God made to him of the Messiah and the things of his future kingdom, 
and the far more clear and extensive knowledge that he had of the mysteries and doctrines of the gospel than others, as a reward for his keeping God's testimonies. In this, it is apparent by the book of Psalms that David far exceeded all that had gone before him. Secondly, another thing that is an infallible sign of spiritual pride is persons being apt to think highly of their humility. False experiences are commonly attended with a counterfeit humility, and it is the very nature of a counterfeit humility to be highly conceited of itself. False religious affections have generally that tendency, especially when raised to a great height to make persons think that their humility is great, and accordingly to take much notice of their great attainments in this respect and admire them. But eminently gracious affections, I scruple not to say it, are ever more of a contrary tendency, and have universally a contrary effect in those that have them. They indeed make them very sensible what reason there is that they should be deeply humbled, and cause them earnestly to thirst and long after it. But they make their present humility, or that which they have already attained to, to appear small, and their remaining pride great, and exceeding abominable. The reason why a proud person should be apt to think his humility great, and why a very humble person should think his humility small, may be easily seen if it be considered that it is natural for persons, in judging of the degree of their own humiliation, to take their measure from that which they esteem their proper height, or the dignity wherein they properly stand. That may be great humiliation in one, that is no humiliation at all in another, because the degree of honourableness, or considerableness, wherein each does properly stand, is very different. For some great man, to stoop, to loose the latchet of the shoes of another great man is equal, or to wash his feet would be taken notice of as an act of abasement in him. And he, being sensible of his own dignity, would look upon it so himself. But if a poor slave is seen stooping to unloose the shoes of a great prince, nobody will take any notice of this, as any act of humiliation in him, or token of any great degree of humility, nor would the slave himself unless he be horribly proud and ridiculously conceited of himself, and if, after he had done it, he should, in his talk and behaviour, show that he thought his abasement great in it, and had his mind much upon it, as an evidence of his being very humble, would not everybody cry out upon him, Whom do you think yourself to be, that you should think this that you have done such a deep humiliation? This would make it plain to a demonstration that this slave was swollen with a high degree of pride and vanity of mind, as much as if he declared in plain terms, I think myself to be some great one. And the manner is no less plain and certain when worthless, vile, and loathsome worms of the dust are apt to put such a construction on their acts of abasement before God, and to think it a token of great humility in them that obey, under their affections, can find themselves so willing to acknowledge themselves to be so mean and unworthy, and to behave themselves as those that are so inferior. The very reason why such outward acts and such inward exercises look like great abasement in such a one, is because he has a high conceit of himself, whereas if he thought of himself more justly, these things would appear nothing to him, and his humility in them worthy of no regard, but would rather be astonished at his pride, that one so infinitely despicable and vile, 
is brought no lower before God. When he says in his heart, This is a great act of humiliation, it is certainly a sign of great humility in me that I should feel thus and do so. His meaning is, This is great humility for me, for such a one as I, that am so considerable and worthy. He considers how low he is now brought, and compares this with the height of dignity on which he, in his heart, thinks he properly stands, and the distance appears very great, and he calls it all mere humility, and as such admires it. Whereas in him that is truly humble, and really sees his own vileness and loathsomeness before God, the distance appears the other way. When he is brought lowest of all, it does not appear to him that he is brought below his proper station, but that he has not come to it. He appears to himself yet vastly above it. He longs to get lower, that he may come to it, but appears at a great distance from it. And this distance he calls pride. And therefore his pride appears great to him, and not his humility. For although he is brought much lower than he used to be, yet it does not appear to him worthy of the name of humiliation, for him that is so infinitely mean and detestable to come down to a place which, though it be lower than what he used to assume, is yet vastly higher than what is proper for him. As men would hardly count it worthy of the name of humility in a contemptible slave that formerly affected to be a prince, to have his spirit so far brought down as to take the place of a nobleman, when this is still so far above his proper station. All men in the world, in judging of the degree of their own and others' humility, as appearing in any act of theirs, consider two things, viz. the real degree of dignity they stand in, and the degree of abasement and the relation it bears to that real dignity. Thus the complying with the same low place or low act may be an evidence of great humility in one, that evidences but little or no humility in another. But truly humble Christians have so mean an opinion of their own real dignity that all their self-abasement, when considered with relation to that and compared to that, appears very small to them. It does not seem to them to be any great humility or any abasement to be made much of for such poor, vile, abject creatures as they to lie at the foot of God. The degree of humility is to be judged of by the degree of abasement, and the degree of the cause of abasement. But he that is truly and eminently humble never thinks his humility great, considering the cause. The cause why he should be abased appears so great, and the abasement of the frame of his heart so greatly short of it, that he takes much more notice of his pride than his humility. Every one that has been conversant with souls under convictions of sin knows that those who are greatly convinced of sin are not apt to think themselves greatly convinced. And the reason is this. Men judge of the degree of their own convictions of sin by two things jointly considered, viz. the degree of sense which they have of guilt and pollution, and the degree of cause they have for such a sense, in the degree of their real sinfulness. It is really no argument of any great conviction of sin for some men to think themselves to be very sinful, beyond most others in the world, because they are so indeed, very plainly and notoriously, and therefore a far less conviction of sin may incline such a one to think so than another. He must be very blind indeed not to be sensible of it, but he that is truly under great convictions of sin naturally thinks this to be his case, 
It appears to him that the cause he has to be sensible of guilt and pollution is greater than others have, and therefore he ascribes his sensibleness of this to the greatness of his sin, and not to the greatness of his sensibility. It is natural for one under great convictions to think himself one of the greatest of sinners in reality, and also that it is so very plainly and evidently, for the greater his convictions are, the more plain and evident it seems to be to him. And therefore it necessarily seems to him so plain and so easy to him to see it, that it may be seen without much conviction. That man is under great convictions, whose conviction is great in proportion to his sin. But no man that is truly under great convictions thinks his conviction great in proportion to his sin. For if he does, it is a certain sign that he inwardly thinks his sin small. And if that be the case, that is a certain evidence that his conviction is small. And this, by the way, is the main reason that persons, when under a work of humiliation, are not sensible of it in the time of it. And as it is with conviction of sin, just so it is, by parity of reason, with respect to persons' conviction or sensibleness of their own meanness and vileness, their own blindness, their own impotence, and all that low sense that a Christian has of himself in the exercise of evangelical humiliation. So that, in a high degree of this, the saints are never disposed to think their sensibleness of their own meanness, filthiness, impotence, etc., to be great, because it never appears great to them considering the cause. An eminent saint is not apt to think himself eminent in anything. All his graces and experiences are ready to appear to him to be comparatively small, but especially his humility. There is nothing that appertains to Christian experience and true piety that is so much out of his sight as his humility. He is a thousand times more quick-sighted to discern his pride than his humility. That he easily discerns, and is apt to take much notice of, but hardly discerns his humility. On the contrary, the deluded hypocrite that is under the power of spiritual pride is so blind to nothing as his pride, and so quick-sighted to nothing as the shows of humility that are in him. The humble Christian is more apt to find fault with his own pride than with other men's. He is apt to put the best construction on others' words and behaviour, and to think that none are so proud as himself. But the proud hypocrite is quick to discern the mote in his brother's eye in this respect, while he sees nothing of the beam in his own. He is very often much in crying out of others' pride, finding fault with others' apparel and way of living, and is affected ten times as much with his neighbour's ring or ribband, as with all the filthiness of his own heart. From the disposition there is in hypocrites to think highly of their humility, it comes to pass that counterfeit humility is forward to put itself forth to view. Those that have it are apt to be much in speaking of their humiliations, and to set them forth in high terms, and to make a great outward show of humility, in affected looks, gestures, or manner of speech, or meanness of apparel, or some affected singularity. So it was of old with the false prophets, Zechariah chapter 13 verse 4. So it was with the hypocritical Jews, Isaiah chapter 57 verse 5. And so Christ tells us it was with the Pharisees, Matthew chapter 6 verse 16. But it is contrarywise with true humility. They that have it are not apt to display their eloquence in setting it forth, or to speak of the degree of their abasement in strong terms. 
it does not affect to show itself in any singular outward meanness of apparel or way of living agreeable to what is implied in matthew chapter six verse seventeen but thou when thou fastest anoint thine head and wash thy face colossians chapter two verse twenty three which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship and humility and neglecting of the body nor is true humility a noisy thing it is not loud and boisterous the scripture represents it as of a contrary nature ahab when he had a visible humility a resemblance of true humility went softly one kings chapter twenty one verse twenty seven a penitent in the exercise of true humiliation is represented as still and silent lamentations chapter three verse twenty eight he sitteth alone and keepeth silence because he hath borne it upon him and silence is mentioned as what attends humility proverbs chapter thirty verse thirty two if thou hast done foolishly in lifting up thyself or if thou hast thought evil lay thine hand upon thy mouth thus i have particularly and largely shown the nature of that true humility that attends holy affections as it appears in its tendency to cause persons to think meanly of their attainments in religion as compared with the attainments of others and particularly of their attainments in humility and have shown the contrary tendency of spiritual pride to dispose persons to think their attainments in these respects to be great i have insisted the longer on this because i look upon it as a matter of great importance as it affords a certain distinction between true and counterfeit humility and also as this disposition of hypocrites to look on themselves better than others is what god has declared to be very hateful to him a smoke in his nose and a fire that burneth all the day isaiah chapter sixty five verse five it is mentioned as an instance of the pride of the inhabitants of that holy city as it was called jerusalem that they esteemed themselves far better than the people of sodom and so looked upon them worthy to be overlooked and disregarded by them ezekiel chapter sixteen verse fifty six for thy sister sodom was not mentioned by thy mouth in the day of thy pride let not the reader lightly pass over these things in application to himself if you once have taken it in that it is a bad sign for a person to be apt to think himself a better saint than others there will arise a blinding prejudice in your own favour and there will probably be need of a great strictness of self-examination in order to determine whether it be so with you if on the proposal of the question you answer no it seems to me none are so bad as i do not let the matter pass off so but examine again whether or no you do not think yourself better than others on this very account because you imagine you think so meanly of yourself have not you a high opinion of this humility and if you answer again no i have not a high opinion of my humility seems to one i am as proud as the devil yet examine again whether self-conceit do not rise up under this cover whether on this very account that you think yourself as proud as the devil you do not think yourself to be very humble from this opposition that there is between the nature of a true and of a counterfeit humility as to the, the esteem that the subjects of them have of themselves arises a manifold contrariety of temper and behaviour 
a truly humble person, having such a mean opinion of his righteousness and holiness, is poor in spirit. For a person to be poor in spirit is to be in his own sense and apprehension poor as to what is in him, and to be of an answerable disposition. Therefore, a truly humble person, especially one eminently humble, naturally behaves himself in many respects as a poor man. The poor useth entreaties, but the rich answereth roughly. A poor man is not disposed to quick and high resentment when he is among the rich. He is apt to yield to others, for he knows others are above him. He is not stiff and self-willed. He is patient with hard fare. He expects no other than to be despised, and takes it patiently. He does not take it heinously that he is overlooked and but little regarded. He is prepared to be in a low place. He readily honours his superiors. He takes reproofs quietly. He readily honours others as above him. He easily yields to be taught, and does not claim much to his understanding and judgment. He is not over nice or humorsome, and has his spirit subdued to hard things. He is not assuming nor apt to take much upon him, but it is natural for him to be subject to others. Thus it is with the humble Christian. Humility, as the great Maastricht expresses it, a kind of holy pusillanimity. A man that is very poor is a beggar, and so is he that is poor in spirit. There is a great difference between those affections that are gracious and those that are false. Under the former the person continues still a poor beggar at God's gates, exceeding empty and needy, but the latter make men appear themselves rich, and increased with goods, and not very necessitous. They have a great stock in their own imagination for their subsistence. A poor man is modest in his speech and behaviour, so, and much more and more, certainly and universally, is one that is poor in spirit. He is humble and modest in his behaviour amongst men. It is in vain for any to pretend that they are humble and as little children before God, when they are haughty, assuming, and impudent in their behaviour amongst men. The Apostle informs us that the design of the Gospel is to cut off all glorying, not only before God, but also before men. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Some pretend to great humiliation, that are very haughty, audacious, and assuming in their external appearance and behaviour, but they ought to consider those scriptures, Psalm 131, verse 1, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty, neither do I exercise myself in great matters, or in things too high for me. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 16 and 17, These six things doth the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him, a proud look, etc. Chapter 21, verse 4, A high look and a proud heart are sin. Psalm 18, verse 27, Thou wilt bring down high looks. And Psalm 101, verse 5, Him that hath a high look and a proud heart, I will not suffer. 1 Corinthians, chapter 13, verse 4, Charity vaunteth not itself, doth not behave itself unseemly. There is a certain amiable modesty and fear that belongs to a Christian behaviour among men, arising from humility, that the scripture often speaks of. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15 Be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you with meekness and fear. 
Romans chapter 13 verse 7, fear to whom fear. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 15, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 5, servants be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all fear. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 9, that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety. In this respect a Christian is like a little child. A little child is modest before men, and his heart is apt to be possessed with fear and awe amongst them. The same spirit will dispose a Christian to honour all men. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 17, honour all men. A humble Christian is not only disposed to honour the saints in his behaviour, but others also, in all those ways that do not imply a visible approbation of their sins. Thus Abraham, the great pattern of believers, honoured the children of Heth. Genesis chapter 23 verse 7, Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land. This was a remarkable instance of a humble behaviour towards them that were out of Christ, and that Abraham knew to be accursed, and therefore would by no means suffer his servant to take a wife to his son from among them. And Esau's wives, being of these children of Heth, were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So Paul honoured Festus. Acts chapter 26 verse 25. I am not mad, most noble Festus. Not only will Christian humility dispose persons to honour those wicked men that are out of the visible church, but also false brethren and persecutors, as Jacob, when he was in an excellent frame, having just been wrestling all night with God and received the blessing, honoured Esau, his false and persecuting brother. Genesis chapter 33 verse 3. Jacob bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother Esau. So he called him Lord, and commanded all his family to honour him in like manner. Thus I have endeavoured to describe the heart and behaviour of one that is governed by a truly gracious humility, as exactly agreeable to the Scriptures as I am able. Now, it is out of such a heart as this, that all truly holy affections do flow. Christian affections are like Mary's precious ointment that she poured on Christ's head that filled the whole house with a sweet odour. That was poured out of an alabaster box, so gracious affections flow out to Christ out of a pure heart. That was poured out of a broken box. Until the box was broken, the ointment could not flow nor diffuse its odour. So gracious affections flow out of a broken heart. Gracious affections are also like those of Mary Magdalene, Luke chapter 7 at the latter end, who also pours precious ointment on Christ out of an alabaster broken box, anointing therewith the feet of Jesus, when she had washed them with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head. All gracious affections that are a sweet odour to Christ, and that fill the soul of a Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy, are broken-hearted affections, a truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy 
even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy, and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit, and more like a, a little child, and more disposed to a universal lowliness of behaviour. End of section 13 of part 3 Recording by Matthew James Gray mjgray.id.au